welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is San Francisco Giants minor league mental skills coach, Dr. Kellen Lee. Dr. Lee has a diverse background, having played baseball at UC San Diego and independent ball. Professionally, he's worked with NCAA Division I, II, and III, high school, youth, and now professional athletes. He also has experience in working with military personnel on how to handle the mental challenges of combat environments. His dissertation on effects of sports-specific mental imagery on collegiate athletes' confidence after an orthopedic injury caught my eye. I feel like this is something that as a coach I needed help with in dealing with players that were injured. As we have seen with the MLB season and the start of the college season, injuries are going to play a part with stops and starts and a shortened ramp-up time. So how do you help players get back on the field competing with confidence after an injury? Let's welcome Dr. Kellen Lee to the podcast. Here with Kellen Lee, uh, new PhD, congratulations, and then minor league uh, mental skills coach with the San Francisco Giants, played collegiately at UC San Diego. Twitter handles at Mentally Perform, and then website is mentallyperform.com. Did I hit all of it? Yeah, no, that sounds good, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for, for jumping on. Um, who were some of your mentors getting into the peak performance side of things? Um, well, it all started from my my playing career specifically. So as a as a collegiate player at UCSD, like you said, um, specifically a catcher, um, I've always been interested on in the mental side of the game. Specifically, you know, our coaching staff at UCSD when I was there did a really great job of facilitating a really competitive environment. You know, teaching us the mental game principles that I know and love today and. You know, as a player, um, I didn't. I don't think I knew uh, how fortunate I really was to be exposed to all those concepts and and techniques and skills that I know took my game to the next level. But also our team. You know, we had a really successful team at UCSD, and um, it's really more. You know, Coach O'Brien, Dan O'Brien, uh, Ryan Leak. You know, Chris Hom, that entire coaching staff down there when I was playing just did a really great job of making us curious about you know what goes into truly sustaining high level of performance. Um, you know, we know how important the physical side of the game is, but, you know, we really took pride in 
taking the time to really break down the mental game to ensure that we're, you know, mentally and physically ready uh, to compete on a nightly and daily basis. What were some of the things that you got in college that you weren't getting in high school? Well, I think it was more just thinking about the game differently. Um, you know, as a, as a high school player, you know, you're really coming into your own as a, as a, as a person, as a player. And, um, you know, I, I really focused on the, the physical side of the game. And I think it was just a, a simple awareness that the mental game exists um, that really got me curious. And it honestly really started, you know, I've kind of bet, re, rewind a little bit when I f- first started at Palomar College, junior college, you know, going the junior college route um, really got, got me thinking about the game differently as well. And my coaches down there, Buck Taylor and Ben Adams, did a really good job of, um, you know, taking me in as a young, young catcher and, um, you know, producing me or, you know, helping me progress to, to be able to transfer to UCSD. But really, I, I, I say the biggest difference between, you know, my high school experience and my college experience is really uh, noticing the complexities of the game and thinking about it slightly different and not just seeing the, the physical side as important, but really um, taking into the tactical side and the mental side of the game, especially as a catcher, you know, working with the pitching staff and, um, and, and it really just got me, um, got me going to the next level, just thinking about the game differently. I, I can't say that enough. It's so important to, to really conceptualize the game on a different level. When did the light bulb go on for you then that this may be something you wanted to do as a profession? You know, it was at UC San Diego. Um, it wasn't necessarily one specific moment, but, you know, as a, as a player who, who you experienced some success, um, you know, and I, and I, and I truly c- contributed it to, or attribute it to the, the mental side of the game. It was really, it was really no question. And, um, you know, I, so I met with someone at UCSD who had a little bit of background in sports psychology. And I was like, you know, what is this field? Like, what, it's so interesting. And then, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years after I graduated, actually it was a year after I graduated, I actually attended the ABCA conference in Anaheim in 2012, I believe it was January, 2012. And, you know, it was, again, my, it was fresh. I was a fresh graduate out of undergrad, really had no idea what I was going to do at the time. I was a baseball ops guy for Santa Clara university. And I walked into a stumbled into a presentation at the ABCA conference. And it was uh, someone who was doing mental skills work in, in professional baseball and I sat down, I listened and I was like, wow, like that is exactly what I want to do. Cause, and I didn't know what exists. I didn't know that job existed and the timing couldn't have been perfect or more perfect. Cause I was just about to start my master's program in sports psychology. And it was just all the stars aligned for that one day. And really like I had no intention of stumbling into that presentation, but I happened to do it. And it, you know, the rest is history. I've always been, you know, fixated and, and focused on, you know, getting doing mental skills work in professional baseball. And here I am. And um, I couldn't be more grateful for all my coaches, but, you know, specifically just my experience with, um, you know, playing around with these concepts and skills as a player, but also like seeing them come to fruition and then realizing that this is a job and a possible, you know, career path for me. It was pretty cool. I have fond memories of 2012 because I actually spoke on Sunday on the main stage. So I will never forget okay, 2012. So you, you, yep. You remember 2012. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, yep. Well, and, and again, like I said, I was, I was a fresh graduate. I was, I was contemplating going into coaching, whether it was going to be, you know, mental skills coaching or baseball. Like I really had no idea at the time, but you know, that one presentation was inspiring. And I'm like, man, this is exactly what I want to do. 
what has helped you with working with the military and then working with athletes? You know, is there crossover between the two? Because I used the military a lot when I was coaching with our players with some of the mental skills that they used with their breathing techniques, a lot of the box breathing that the, the SEALs use. So I, I did use that and introduce it. So what are some of the carryovers with working with the military? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I think it's, it's fascinating to, to look at these, both of these environments, these performance environments and um, be able to, to extract some of these mental skills that are, that are essential for elite performance in both. And, you know, what's really interesting is I, I, I share this all the time with our players and our coaches is that the, the, the physical performances of what they do in the military and what they do in baseball are vastly different, right? Hitting a baseball is very different than shooting a rifle or running an obstacle course or jumping out of an airplane. You know, I can go on and on, but really from a mental skill standpoint, when you really peel back the layers, the skills are identical. And you know, for example, let's just say the, the, in the military context, the, the performance is to clear a room, you know, they're going into a building that the clear a room and from a, from a baseball standpoint, let's just say it's, you know, you know, taking it at bat, stepping in the batter's box, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, you have to be able to, like you said, control your breathing. You have to control your heart rate. You have to control where your attention is and where your focus is and how well you concentrate and, you know, making quick decisions. And when you step into a batter's box, you have to control your heart rate. You have to control your breathing. You have to control your focus and attention, and you have to make a quick decision. So the, the skill set is identical. And what's really interesting now that I've worked with both contexts or both, both the environments is that each group has a mutual respect for each other. And, you know, what's really interesting is when I was doing a pre presentations with the military, you know, the United States army specifically, um, I would use a lot of sports examples because I come from a sports world. I played every sport under the sun as a kid. My training is in sports psychology. So like that was where I was really comfortable. And what was really interesting is some of those, you know, soldiers that you would think are like, you know, naturally mentally tough, they had to learn it too. And they would go like, wow, like that is so incredible. Like I can't even imagine stepping into a batter's box with 40,000 fans screaming my name. And then, you know, flip to the side now, like when I'm talking to our, our players, our minor league players in the, with the Giants, is they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine trying to clear a room or, you know, trying to shoot a weapon or, you know, trying to, you know, get like a deployment. And it, so it, it's really interesting that what they don't what they see is the physical side, again, very different. But what they don't see is that the, the mental skills that they bring to the table are identical. And uh, like I said, the mutual respect is pretty cool and kind of being in the middle of seeing both worlds um, is, is a pretty unique and cool experience as, as a, as a mental skills professional. How did you get connected with the military side? Well, you know, what's really interesting is within the field of sports psychology as a whole, uh, the, the most, uh, jobs that are available are with the military in some capacity, you know, so the program I came from, there was about 200, uh, mental skills professionals across the world. Really. We have sites all over the world and it, it, it has always been, on my, on my radar as a, as a student, you know, I knew that was a, that was a really common job to get. Well, um, growing up to in San Diego too, like you're around it. I, I mean, that was always the thing that stuck out to me about San Diego besides the baseball side was there's choppers everywhere. I mean, you see it everywhere in San Diego. Yeah. And, you know, again, like, like you said, coming from San Diego, I obviously had a, a really strong respect for the military, you know, every single branch of the military is in San Diego in some capacity. Um, but me as me as a person, like I never really, I never had any intention of working with the military and en enlisting in the military, anything like that. And when the job opportunity came up, 
it was really just a good fit. So I, I live in the Bay Area and the, the site that I was working at is a really small army base in the East Bay Area in um, Dublin specifically. And, um, you know, I, I had a friend who was working there and he was talking it up and he's like, man, this is a great place. We're getting good experience. And, you know, it's a, I think it would be good for you. And um, to be honest, I was really skeptical of like, I don't really see the connection. Like, you know, I love the military. I think I, I love what they do. I respect what they do. But I was really like unsure if that's where I wanted to go professionally. But, you know, I, I realized that it was a good opportunity for me to get a lot of repetitions and talking about these concepts. And, um, you know, I spent three years with that program and I, and I couldn't have um, I, I, I can't be more grateful for that opportunity to be with them and to learn from them. And, you know, it really set me up nicely to, to transition into my current job with the Giants. What are some of the skills that you deal with then with the military guys that kind of made sense? I mean, clear, you talk about clearing a room. So what are some of their routines that they have to go through before they're going to clear a room? You know, it, it depends. It really depends on what each person needs going into their, their performance. And a group of five people might need five different routines. So um, the, the key there is to provide them with a, a structure and a, and a framework to work from and go, Hey, these are some ideas and concepts and skills that might've might work or, you know, have proven to work in the past. Let's find what works for you and really make it an, a, a really individualized approach. And the same thing goes with working with baseball guys, as we know, we're all different, right? And we're all cut from, you know, the, essentially the same cloth, like routines are important, but every routine looks different. And, you know, as a mental skills coach, it's, it's important to know, like, and present some of these concepts the same way of, Hey, a routine is important, but I'm not going to tell you exactly what goes into your routine. Like I'll provide a couple of suggestions of like, this might be helpful or this might be helpful, but let's, let's go, let's get in the trenches, so to speak and figure out what's going to work for you. And so, you know, it, it could, it could range from, like you said, from breathing to finding a focal point to, um, to, you know, doing a quick visualization in their mind of what they want to happen. Like it, it, the, the, end, the possibilities are endless and it's really up to that person. First of all, first, like the first and more, most important thing is recognizing that routines are important. First, you have to accept that those are important. Second, you have to find out what do I want to put into my routine to structure it in a way to, to make sure it's consistent and make sure that I'm mentally and physically ready to do whatever I'm about to do, my task at hand, and then go out and execute it. And then from there, be able to, to be uh, flexible enough to adjust it because over time your skill set changes and therefore your, your routine may or may not change. It just depends on the person. But I think not being so rigid all the time to, um, to stick to something. Cause I think that's where it blends into almost like a superstition and we don't really want to go down that road. It's more of like, you know, I think of routine, like the difference between routines and superstitions are really a routine can change over time, but in our mind, a superstition can never change. And in my mind, our routines should change and alter and be adjusted given our performance demands and our skill set. And I think over time, those change. So our routines are likely to change as well. Has that been the biggest thing, maybe working with the Giants that you've figured out is that that everybody's going to be a little bit different? Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> I think from a from a coaching standpoint, I'd say that like the biggest challenge is, you know, standing in a group of, let's just say, 50 minor league guys you're getting such a wide spectrum of backgrounds, education, language capabilities, positions, right? And every single person is there to get something of value when I'm presenting. And the challenge is, you know, I might have uh, one player who, 
you know, wants to dive deep into the, the empirical research and know all the data. And then one guy's just like, dude, just tell me what I got to know so I can go get, be good tonight. And meeting the entire group where they're at and giving everyone something of value is a challenge. Right. And, and, and then be like, uh, uh, like beyond that, you know, when I have my one-on-one interactions on the field or around the clubhouse, it's finding out like, okay, where is this person along that spectrum, but also like where they are in their mental game. Maybe, maybe they've never spent time addressing their mental game and I have to cater my approach to that. Or they've spent hours and hours and hours training their mental side and they just want a little bit of fine tuning or they just want to bounce ideas off me. Or they're like, Hey, Kellen, like I got this idea. Like what, can I grab your ear for a second? And it really just depends on what they need. And that's really the art of mental skills coaching is identifying their need and providing the support that they, that they want and need in the moment, um, depending on their background, depending on how well they understand the mental game. Um, And then also like, another piece of the, that I think is often missed when it comes to mental skills coaching is sometimes the, the one-on-one time, you know, quote unquote, is simply like a 20 second interaction from them walking from the cage to the field. And I'm just standing there and, you know, I can't go into an hour long sit down session where we're really breaking down concepts. It's more of like, Hey man, like I need to know that person so well and to know where, where they're at mentally that I could say one thing to them and it gets them mentally ready for whatever they're about to do, whether it's BP defense, a game, whatever, doesn't matter. And, and that is really a challenge, but so fun to take on. Well, I just saw one of your tweets in uh, Spanish. So, I mean, how, how fluent are you in Spanish? It's a process. Um, I'd I was say- trying to read the. I was actually trying to read cause I did take Spanish in, in high school, but that was it. But I actually could pick up from your tweet, like what you were trying to say, from the English part of it. So, which I think it's fascinating on, on the minor league side and major league side, because the language barrier is a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like similar to your experience, you know, going, uh, in high school, I took a lot of Spanish, um, growing up in San Diego, I grew up with a lot of kids who spoke Spanish. Um, but honestly, like I, I didn't speak Spanish for a long time. And up until the moment where I was like, you know, I, re- I was really serious about getting into baseball. I'm like, man, I really need to brush up on the Spanish. So I, you know, did a lot of, um, you know, individual study. I would do apps. So I would read, I would, I listen to music. I let a lot, listen to a lot of Spanish music, which really helps too. Um, which a- which fort- apps did you dive into? Uh, Babbel, um, Duolingo are the two that I've used in the past. Um, and I got a Rosetta Stone in the, in the past. So I, you know, I've used kind of uh, all of them. Um, and then with the Giants, we're really fortunate to where um, the we have another mental skills coach in the minor leagues who is fully bilingual. His name is Cisco Rodriguez. Um, he's from the Dominican Republic, and he's such a great resource for me. So at least the way we tackle some of um, some of the the translation challenges that we have is we'll we'll have like a document or we'll have something that we want to share with the players, and I will make the attempt on translating first, and then I'll send it to him. He'll double check it, and then we'll send it off to make sure it's all good to go. So. You know, especially, you know, in the past nine months where we've been, you know, trying to be really creative in, in creating content, uh, the opportunity to practice Spanish has been much more abundant. And I know personally, like that, a, per, a personal goal of mine is to become fluent in the language um, just because, you know, f- about 40% of our players come from, you know, Spanish speaking countries and don't have a lot of English capabilities. And like I said, like the, like the common theme that I keep referring back to, it's up to us to meet them where they're at. And if they're at a, at a point in their life where they don't have 
the ability to articulate concepts in English, shoot, I will meet them where they're at and I'll have a Spanglish conversation with them and stumble through it and make mistakes and, and really set the tone for them and send the unspoken message that I truly care about them and I really want to learn and I want to connect with them. And um, I've had a lot of cool opportunities to connect with guys by making mistakes in Spanish. Um, and that's been a really cool experience to go through. You talked a lot about routines. Uh, is being great boring? I would say that on the surface, it looks like it, but being great is not boring behind the, behind the scenes because it's extremely hard to. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about is, um, you know, it, within the mental skills world, and I think in baseball in general, there's always a discussion around like process versus results. And, you know, I hear a lot of people say like, oh, it's all about the process, focus on the process. And they're not wrong. It's not entirely accurate. And what I mean by that is like results matter. Like if you don't put up results, you ain't going to stay in the game, especially in pro ball. So like I, I am a mental skills guy at, you know, through and through. And I would say the process is important. Yet results are results matter. The process is just helpful. And, and that's the dynamic that, that we, that we, that we, that we uh, balance with is the, the, what it takes to produce results may be seen as boring. As you say, I see it as more of just a consistent commitment to staying disciplined to what's helpful to, to create the results that you want. And discipline, I would say might not be necessarily boring for the person going through it, but it might be boring for everyone watching. Like, man, that guy just does the same thing all the time. Like, I don't get it. Like that looks really dull and boring. But if you, if you had a snapshot into what was like going through their mind, like I, I the, the analogy I use when it comes to like thoughts, like tuning into our thoughts is like watching sports center where, you know, all the, the random sports stories are going on along the bottom of the, the screen. Like those are, that's kind of how our brain works where it's just like one thought after another, after another, after another. And 60, 6,700 in a day. It's a lot. Right. And 6, it just fires. And it's important for us to like sometimes figuratively and literally push pause and go like, okay, where are my thoughts? Like, and if we were able to do that to someone who was consistently great, we would see consistently great thoughts and like consistently effective and productive thoughts. And that is not easy to do. And I wouldn't say that's boring at all. I'd say that's fascinating to know like what they're thinking about, but we unfortunately don't get a peek into um, we don't often get a peek into some of those thoughts or like push pause, so to speak on their thoughts. Um, and, but it may appear boring, but I wouldn't say it's boring at all. Do you feel like that's the keys to staying away from slumps or getting yourself out of slumps is having great thoughts? I mean, your thoughts matter and your, your body follows your mind and your mind follows your body and whatever you need first uh, is essential. And it's kind of the chicken or the egg conversation where, you know, we, we, we mental skills people throw around the idea, like, do you need to feel confident before you act confident? Or do you need to act confident to feel confident? And there's really no right or wrong answer because every person's different, like we've said. Um, but I, I just think that it's, it's important to, to recognize that consistent thoughts, consistent approach leads and yields consistent results. So like you said, to get yourself out of the slump, perhaps it's to get you've got away from something consistent that's worked for you in the past and you need to get back to it. Or you need to change what you're currently doing because it's not working for you. And it all starts with your thoughts, right? Like our brain's job is to send signals to our body to physically move our muscles. 
and our, if our mind is clouded, our brain cannot do its essential function, period. And we need to fill our mind with very intentional, deliberate, and productive thoughts that will allow our brain to do its job and replicate the physical movements that we've rep repeated over and over and over. And it's simply allowing our, essentially getting out of our brain's way to do its job. And that's what mental training is really all about and allowing our thoughts to work for us as opposed to against us. Are you having them journal at all? So maybe they can kind of track when things are going good, maybe what, what their thought process is, they're having good thoughts. Are you having them journal? Journaling is, is super effective. Um, I think it, it really depends on the, the person. Um, I recommend it to everyone. Um, you know, I'm not going to force anyone to, to bust out a journal and, you know, you know, go to town, but I recommend it. And I, and the reason why is, you know, when you go through a practice day or a game, there's like you said, there's, you know, 60,000 plus thoughts that we have a day. Um, you know, there's a lot of thoughts that are missed and sometimes those thoughts that are missed can really give us a good insight into what's working and what, what's not working for us. And I think it's important to, to take note of both. Um, cause oftentimes when it comes to the, the mental skills world, we get sent players that are quote unquote head cases or the ones that are just like, man, this guy's all kinds of messed up. And what, what I, my, my initial response is kind of a chuckle. And then my second response is like, you know, if their, if their mind is that powerful to, to screw up their game, then man, I bet it says just as powerful to help them improve their game. And, and that's, and that's the, the, the essential, like, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a, a jokingly tone that I take with the coach, but it really, it opens up their eyes. It goes like, wow, like I never thought of it that way because most people don't, because they think about the mental game of, you know, they're, you know, they're an overthinker, overanalyzer, you know, they're thinking too much out there. They're, you know, they're in a slump. They can't, they're, they have the yips. Oh my gosh. The Y word, man. Oh, that, that one gets me every time. And it's, but at the same time, like, very rarely do we sit back and like really take a look at someone who's like super consistent. Like oh, Derek Jeter always comes to mind when it comes to consistency and, you know, his mindset and his approach. And, but we don't spend time like analyzing his mental game when we spend time so much time analyzing everyone's bad mental game. And it's fascinating to me to see the difference. How do you help those guys redirect? Maybe their wiring's not good. Their, their default is to negative thoughts first. How do you help those players redirect? I, I mean, I simply ask a lot of questions. That's my approach as a, as a coach. Um, you know, one of the one of the common pitfalls in this line of work, I'd say, is assuming you know what they're thinking and assuming you know what they need. And I think it's 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 critical to to really approach this this job and this this role as a mental skills coach and a coach in general as just really curious and um, inquisitive with your players and. You know, especially like, again, at the highest level with the Giants, like these kids have had so much experience and so much success in their life. And chances are they have the answer. It's just up to me to help them find it. You know, and I'll, and I'll share a quick story. So this past spring training, I had a guy, um, one of our middle infield minor league guys, um, just went through a defensive drill and he came up to me. It was during BP. And I happened to be shagging in the outfield at the time. And he came up to me. He's like, Kellen, man, I got to talk to you. I'm like, okay, what's up, man? Like, what's going on? And he's like, dude, I just went through this defensive drill. We were doing backhands. And he's like, I am like 
he's like, I don't want to brag, but like, I'm pretty good at back backhands. Like I'm pretty sure handed, like I'm pretty good. And he's like, I was terrible. Like that was the worst drill I've ever had. Like, I don't even know what to do. So you're the mental skills guy. So like, what do you got for me? Right. And I'm like, okay, so have you ever, you know, struggled on ground balls in the past? He's like, well, yeah, like, of course I'm a shortstop. Like we, we get ground balls all the time and we go through spurts where we don't, we mess up and miss the balls. Okay, cool. So in the past, you know, what have you done to address these moments where, you know, you don't necessarily feel comfortable. You didn't perform very well. Like what'd you do? He's like, well, huh. Um, let's see. I, that same day I went out and took, you know, 50 more. And then the next day I took, you know, another hour of ground balls. And, you know, I really focused on my backhand and really brought my attention to, you know, every rep. And I'm like, Hmm, that sounds cool. Like maybe you should do that. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea, man. Thanks, Kellen. I need, I really needed this chat. And so he goes on his way and, and I see him later in the lunchroom and I'm like, you know, I'm sitting down, I'm eating my lunch, doing my thing. And he comes up, he's like, Kellen, like, I just, I just want to say, I really appreciate the chat earlier. Like I'm, I'm, I really feel better. And, you know, I went and got my ground balls and I feel much better. I'm going to do it tomorrow. He's like, I really appreciate it. And I, I look at him like, you know, I didn't tell you anything, right. You know, I didn't give you anything. Right. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, all I did was ask you what you've done in the past. And I just helped you find the answer that you already had. And he's like, Whoa, that's awesome. Either way. Thanks, man. I'll see you tomorrow. And it was cool. And I, and those moments are so awesome. But like the point of the story is really to say that these guys have the answer it just helped us to help them find it. I probably drive people in our office crazy because that's part of my process is to ask those questions out loud. And you kind of come to the answer when you're, you're asking those questions out loud. And I'm sure I'll, I drive people nuts with that <laughs> part because that is how I come to, you know, better questions and also answers is by thinking out loud. And some of it's probably redundant, but it just helps me, we, me work through things. Hey, take us, one, one, go ahead. I'll, I'll just add one thing. So one thing that's, that's, um, that I found really helpful is, you know, as a baseball guy, there are a lot of times where I feel like I know what they're going through, or I think I know what they need or what I think I know they're thinking. And in those moments, I'm really much more deliberate about asking questions. And I'll, even if I think I know the answer, I'll ask anyway, because they might provide a totally brand new perspective that I've never considered in the past, or they'll just confirm what I'm thinking already, which is fine. Either way, I'm learning something about that person. So I just want to throw it out there because I've seen coaches a lot and it's a really easy tendency because coaches want to help. They want to give their experience. They want to share what, what's worked for them, but that might not work for that person. So whether you think you know the answer or not, ask the question anyway is the, is the point there. Walk us through the PhD process because I, I, I'm fascinated. I got my master's, but didn't take that next step. So walk us through the PhD process. Yeah, um, it was a long grind, um, but well worth it now that I'm out the other end. And um, really how it's all started um, was when I was first, when it was, it was when I started the program, um, I was just started with the, with the military. So I just got the job with the United States Army working with those guys. Um, and I, I realized going through the initial trainings for that job that there was just so much more to learn. And I started looking into different programs and, and I realized that you know, I think the PhD was right for me. And really the main motivation, a couple of main motivations behind it, you know, even starting the program was, you know, 30 years down the road when I'm, you know, done doing the mental skills coaching, I, I would love to be a professor. I'd love to teach sports psychology 
um, and, you know, help the, the future of the field. But also like in the, in the short term, I'd love to be like a director of a program, you know, whether it's in, in pro ball or, you know, at a, at a university, but doing the sports psychology work. And, and I think the PhD would, um, you know, at the time, you know, I, I was like, man, this, I think this would set me up nicely. So that was really the two main reasons um, to, that I started. But the process overall was, was really great. So I went through um, Grand Canyon University um, in, uh, with a specialization in performance psychology, so really closely related to sports psychology. Um, and the, the program did really well and, and obviously let me work full time and still do the program, you know, doing a lot of classes online. And, and then the dissertation process is really the, the meat and potatoes of the entire process and really was a, a two and a half year endeavor. Um, and, uh, it consisted of, you know, going to campus a couple times to meet with professors to make sure that you're, you're hitting the certain milestones. And then over the past year or so, um, was really the, the actual study itself and getting the proposal done and, and, and actually executing the study. And, you know, the, the, tw- the weird 2020 year, uh, was challenging for a lot. Uh, you know, personally speaking, it gave me a lot of time to focus on this project um, and I was really, I was really pleased with the, with the outcome of the project. We can get into that if you would like. Um, yeah, that's my next question. Cause that's, that's why I reached out to you. Cause your dissertation, you threw it out there and congratulations by the way. Cause it, Thank you. you know, it's, it's a matter of putting the work in. Um, I think with anything after, after your undergrad, it, it's really just putting the work in and being willing to put the work in, but, but the effects of sports specific mental imagery, on collegiate athletes' confidence after orthopedic injury. And that popped me. The title's great, but also with you look at MLB, you look at the NFL, there's more injuries right now because of the, not having enough ramp-up time. So that we are dealing with more injuries, and you're probably going to see that going forward until things get somewhat back to normal. So it is something that coaches are going to have to deal with, which is why I brought it up. And I wanted you to come on because I think this is is very appropriate for the time of where we're at, where coaches are going to have to deal with this more and more. So just dive in and, you know, why why did you come up with the topic? Because I think that's the first place to start is, okay, here's my topic, but then go through the whole process of, of what you found. Yeah, so um, fortunately, as a, as a player, I never experienced really serious injuries. Um, so that's like the first question people are like, Oh, you study psych of psych of injury. Like you had to have been injured. I'm like, honestly, no, like I was really fortunate. Um, so where, where the topic originally came from, um, was first, I, I realized that, you know, I had, I had worked with, uh, I did some consultant work with a university and was sent a lot of, of athletes that were going through the injury process. And it, and I, what I realized was, that within the field of sports psychology specific specifically, there's not a lot of training to work with injured athletes. And I'm like, okay, so there, there's a need there. And then, um, I'm, I'm, my wife is actually a, a collegiate athletic trainer. So that was a little bit more of the interest there where we would have some conversations. I would pick her brain on a couple of things and I'd ask her questions about, you know, some of the, some of the experiences she's had from a, from a professional standpoint, working with those collegiate athletes returning back from an injury and, and I realized, I'm like, man, I think, I think this could be, you know, a really cool study. So um, I, do, I dove into the literature with the intention of, um, you know, in literature, sports medicine, sports psychology, and really the like confidence and, and imagery and kind of all, all intertwined and realized there was a need to, to run this type of study. So um, essentially, you know, the, 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 the topic of the title is a really fancy way of saying 
I measured confidence uh, of the of the athletes with an injury. I taught them how to use visualization or imagery. I measured their confidence three weeks later and determined that the use of the imagery or visualization uh, intervention was uh, it statistically significantly um, increased the level of confidence for the participants. Um, and then uh, hold on. You know, so back to, up. How did you get baseline confidence? So uh, w within the field of sports psychology, we have uh, multiple validated measures of confidence. Um, specifically, this study, I had two different types. I had what's called trait and state. So trait confidence is more of like your general level of confidence. And then state confidence is more of like in the moment, like right now, if you were to take the, take the survey, it would assess it. So I took two different types and um, both, both types were increased by the intervention um, in comparison to, because I had a control group as well. Um, what did you do for your control group? Nothing. I gave them nothing. So I just assessed their confidence first and then assessed their confidence at the three week mark. And then just looked at the comparison between the experimental and the control group. Um, and for the listeners, so I had 68 participants in the study, um, ranging from all different types of collegiate sports. Um, you know, what, what's really cool for me personally, that baseball and softball were the two most, um, most represented in the, in the, in the sample size. So 24 baseball players, 12 softball players, um, and then given the nature of the, like the timing of my, the, the actual study, uh, since a lot of, since fall sports were canceled this year and there was a lot of, you know, and the spring sport, the spring season was, was cut short. A lot of the, a lot of the participants had like long-term post-surgical injuries. So I had a handful of post Tommy John. I had a lot of ACL reconstructions. I had, um, uh, you know, torn labrums, hip labrums. So it just, just a, a, a wide variety of like more longer term injuries, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, I had like a couple of like ankle sprains, more of the short term, but a lot of the longer term. Um, and what's cool is it, regardless of the injury, the, the intervention proved to be successful, which was really cool to see. And I was really pleased about the results. And um, yeah, so, I mean, I, it was, it was really cool to see that intersection of the, the sports psychology and sports medicine world come together a little bit um, and also just pr produce something that I think could be usable for the future and with, you know, sports medicine and athletic trainers, um, as you know, the, the, the literature suggests in the review is that the sports medicine professionals recognize that the mental side of sport injury is really critical and really important. However, m the majority of them lack the, the training or the, like the comfort in like providing that mental skill component. Um, so in, in the, in the, in the results section, I, you know, I put the recommendation that, you know, sports psychology professionals should seek out these opportunities, but also the sports medicine professionals should look to the sports psychology professionals to say, Hey, I could really use this support, uh, you know, helping these athletes get back to injury and recognizing that the, like the return to play process is such a, a mental grind an emotional grind for these players, especially these, you know, Tommy John guys who are out 12 to 15 months. And uh, it's just so it's such a huge component of it. And, and so I'm really happy that I, that I've gained some insight into that, into that world. And, you know, with the work with the giants, you know, I'm slowly, you know, helping the athletic trainers see this, this side of, of the return to play process. And again, they're, they're not oblivious to it. It's more of, they're, they're just like, we're just unsure of how to go about it and how to address it. So that's where I come in and, and provide that supplementary support to that, that group. 
to ensure that our players are mentally and physically ready when they return. The protocol and the mental imagery then, did you read something off? Did you have a recorded audio? What was the prescription then for the mental imagery? So uh, it was a five and a half minute video of um, mostly educational. So it was more of like, okay, so here are the components you use in imagery. So you should include the physical environment. You should include the emotion that you're, that you're experiencing while you're performing and really the intent there. And, and again, a little bit more of the insight behind the, the, behind the entire intent of the study is that in theory, athletes with an injury cannot phys- they're physically limited in some capacity. They can't get the physical repetitions that they would otherwise get. But this, this strategy of visualization imagery allows them to get the mental repetition. So that, and that was, that was, that was woven into this entire educational video, but really it was like, okay, so here's what visualization imagery is, how, this is how you can improve it. This is how you make it really effective. And now that you're having a limited, you have a limited amount of physical repetitions here, you can maximize your, your mental repetition. So the program that I gave them, which really isn't very minimal and is honestly a limitation that I would suggest for much higher is I told them over the three week span, just do 20 minutes total, 20 minutes total of using visualization imagery, which is a very low amount in, in comparison to what, what I would otherwise do if I had like one-on-one time and I had like hands-on interaction with these play, with these athletes, I would do it. I would do it much more, but it was more just to get a baseline of like, okay, so if they did on their own for 20 minutes for three weeks, let's see what happens. And sure enough, it worked really well. So um, like I said, yeah, in the video, it provides some education, how to use it, what it is, and then the specific program of doing it 20 minutes for three weeks. Before we we would get into mental imagery in the classroom session, I would I would hand out the free throw shooting mental mm-hmm. imagery. I think that's the probably the historical one that everyone knows. But before we would get into it, I'm like, hey, here's some research that a guy did on free throw shooters. Here's why it works, because the brain doesn't actually know if you're going through it or not. And that's the great thing with this. But I love that you're taking it to that next step with injured athletes, because I'm the same as you. I never had any injuries that kept me out of playing. So I had a hard time dealing with players that were injured. And I would tell them that like, Hey, I'm not forgetting about you, but just know from my personal background, I never had to deal with anything like this. So if you need me, come talk to me and we can work through this, but just know where I'm coming at as a coach as well is because I never really had to deal with anything like this. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important for these players to, to realize that, you know, as they're in the return to play process, they can still sharpen their skills. And, and it was, it's more of just giving them an additional tool to, to supplement all of their rehab exercises. And, you know, cause, and, and, and here's another, another part of the intent of choosing confidence specifically to measure is a lot of the, a lot of the literature suggests that, you know, coming from the athletic, the, the, the athlete perspective, but also the sports medicine per, professional perspective is that confidence tends to be the most um, volatile when it comes to these players who are returning to play, because there's many levels to the confidence, right? There's the confidence in their ability to return to their previous playing level. There's their confidence in their injured limb to, to do what it's supposed to do without being re-injured. There's a fear of re-injury. There's the confidence in their rehab program itself. So there's so many different layers to it again. And I didn't get into all the layers, the, the, the confidence that I specifically assessed was just sport confidence, just very general, like here's your general level. Here's your level right now. And you could, you can go into all these different types of confidence, but 
that's specifically why I chose that construct to measure is to, is to show that, you know, the confidence can fluctuate so much in this process because there's so many things that are like hitting at your confidence. It's like I said, the, you know, from, from a baseball player, from a pitcher who was, you know, throwing mid nineties, who happens to get TJ, they have to trust their elbow to go full go when they're, when they're 13, 14, 15 months out of, out of, you know, post-surgery. So that confidence is so critical. And, and that's specifically why I chose that, um, chose that idea to, to assess. Well, the great thing now is you can put need for further research. I mean, that, yep, and I absolutely did. <laughs> that's I the goal of all did. research is need for further research. And honestly, like I think down the road after I take a breather and, you know, not, not look at my computer screen for as much as I did over the past year, I would imagine that I would dive back into some research like this. Um, cause I think it's such a, such a cool area to look into. And there's so many different directions you can go. Like, you know, some, one of the, one of the recommendations for future research, like you said, is to measure other psychological constructs aside from confidence. So you can look at imagery ability. You could look at, um, you know, their, their motivation levels and how that fluctuates. Like there's so many different things you could look at by using the same structure of a study, but just look at, you know, not confidence. So just look at other constructs. So, um, yeah, I know it's a, it was a really cool study to go through and I'm really happy to be done and I'm really pleased with the results and, um, and I'm, and I'm fired up to see, you know, where it goes from here. And it's in the process of, of, you know, being uploaded to the dissertation, um, uh, database. So I'll be sure to share, share the link with you to, to check it out and, I don't recommend reading all 260 some odd pages, but there are some good sections that I think would really be helpful for the listeners, for, for anyone who's curious to, to learn more. And obviously they can all reach out to me if they have any questions as well. We're in a great time for information. How come players aren't as resilient as maybe they were in the past? Um, I would say that um, the, the key here, like you said, there's a lot of information out there. And I think the key here is to identify the source of information that you're getting it from. Cause a lot of times, you know, you can, you can go a dive deep into the internet and find, you know, the 10 best ways to be resilient, the 10 best ways to do this and that. And they're, they're, don't get me wrong. Some of those things are really great resources and, and can be really helpful. Um, I just think it's important for everyone to do their homework, to identify where is this coming from, to know, is it a credible source? And to, to realize that there is not a, a foolproof, perfect equation to be mentally tougher, to be more resilient, to be you know better at what you do. It's a dynamic, it's an ever-changing, it's a complex process that you have to commit to on a regular basis. And I think where you can start just my, 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 where you can start, just my biggest recommendation is just start with self-awareness and understand who you are as a person, understand your values, what, what's important to you, what drives you on a daily basis. Because if you're able to clearly align who you are as a, as a human being to where you want to go, you're going to, you're going to see some good things. You're going to see sustained motivation. You're going to see progress. You're going to see, uh, you're, you're going to see yourself perform better at whatever you do, whether it's sports or coaching or being a parent, whatever it might be, um, you're going to see yourself get so much better at what you do. Um, and, and that's the biggest recommendation is just becoming more aware of who you are as a person and realizing that regardless of what you do, who you are really matters. What's your definition of a competitor? 
someone who's able to focus on the right thing at the right time, regardless of your circumstances. And that is extremely hard to do because there are so many things that could be pulling at your attention, pulling at your, your, your limited resources of energy, attention, and effort that if I'm able to allocate my energy, attention, and effort to what I'm doing in the moment, I'm going to be so much more consistent and so much better at what I'm doing and be much, much, a much better competitor at, you know, in, in these really high stakes situations. I think this is the best time in history we have for, for peak performance and mental skills coaches because we have so many different voices. And I think this is a phenomenal time for all of this because we have so many different voices out there, which is tremendous because not every voice is going to speak to everybody the same. And I think this is a great time, um, best time we've ever had because there's so much information out there to, to help players. Yeah. And I think, um, there's no doubt about that. And it's so, it's so encouraging to see more and more organizations turning to, to mental skills professionals to provide their, their players and coaches with, with the, with the resource that I think is absolutely essential to be at the top of your game consistently. And, um, so like I said, just make sure that, um, people are looking into, you know, where this, where this, where the resources are coming from. And that's the biggest recommendation I can get is use all of it. Be mindful of where it's coming from because there's a lot of good stuff out there and just make sure that you're, you're, you're doing stuff that's going to be helpful for you. And not just because someone told you it's going to be good. Um, because like I said, every person's different and they might, you might need something different than your buddy, than your coach needed. Um, and that's again, speaking specifically to the listeners, you know, it's, it's all about identifying what you need and going after it. What about mental imagery for healthy athletes? I mean, what, what some recommendations for healthy athletes? I think being as real, uh, this is, this goes for both, both contexts, people with injury without, um, being as realistic and vivid with your imagery as possible. Um, cause like you said, our brain doesn't distinguish between real or imagined events. And the more realistic we can be with our experience mentally, the more likely it is to be able to translate to a physical skill acquisition later. Um, and with that said, specifically of the content of the imagery, I would say, I would say that you should create multiple imagery experiences, whether that's writing out a script and you listen to yourself. That, that's one thing that I'll do one-on-one if I have the time is I'll sit down with someone, I'll say, okay, you know, all right, so let's make an imagery script for you walking to the plate. Cool. couple minutes, we'll break it down. We'll write it down specifically. I will have that person record it and then send them the recording so that they can listen to it so that they're, they're hearing their own voice walk through that, um, that experience. So that's, that's another recommendation there, but have different imagery scripts or experiences lined up for whatever you do. So a, like a position player would have one on defense, one on offense, and perhaps um, one during like weight, like strength and conditioning weights, weight session, or, you know, a pitcher might have um, uh, an imagery script for maybe executing their fastball and their slider and their changeup and their curveball perhaps, or, or just like between pitches, again, whatever they would need to be successful or whatever they need. Um, or they might have one, just a pregame there's maybe there's a pregame Im- imagery that they do. Um, but it's really identifying what, where you need to, to mentally sharpen your game, uh, but ultimately being as realistic and vivid as possible um, is the key there. And one way to do that is to record yourself and listen to it, to uh, like guiding yourself. We would dig into the internet to try to find home plate view when we're going on the road to try to find home plate view for the hitters of where we're going on the road and then uh, catcher's view 
of the stadium for the pitchers um, to try to add that next layer of with their visualization of what it's actually going to look like in the environment that they're going to be in just to try to make it as specific as possible. Oh, that, that's a great strategy. And I think um, coaches out there, if you have the opportunity to, to do that and find pictures, I think that's great. Um, you're going to, you're going to walk into your players and you will walk into environments much more uh, like comfortable and it'll be more um, relatable. And anytime you can create that realistic component, any way you can do it is, is an absolute game changer when it comes to visualization imagery. Who's your favorite coach growing up? Ooh, man, playing for or watching? Playing for. Oh, man. Um, I would say – I mean, I got. I think I got to go with uh, – man, this is a really hard one. I've had so many good coaches. Um, I, had a, I had a football coach in high school that I know brought the best out of me. His name was Eric Jorgensen. Um, and he, he is, he was always someone that I turned to for really anything. I think on the baseball side, uh, it's gotta be Dan O'Brien that I played for at UCSD. Um, he really brought the best out of me again. He challenged me. He made me a better person. He uncovered a lot of these mental game strategies, uh, that allowed me to be successful, um, and allowed our team to be successful. And, um, yeah, so I give those two people a shout out, Eric Eric Jorgensen, Dan O'Brien. If you could go back and tell your high school self one thing uh, about anything, what would it be? I would tell myself to not take everything so seriously and at the same time focus my efforts and attention on things that matter. Because I think at the time, you know, I was – I was a really good high school student and I think I took, I took that very seriously because I thought it was the end all be all. And I think other areas of my life suffered because of it. And I specifically my playing career, like I was just an average to above above average high school baseball player. And I think it was more so because I wasn't able to effectively bring my attention to things that mattered and things that were important. And sure. School is important. I'm not discounting the importance of academics because you know, it can, it can give, lead you to the gateway to get into college and get into a great place. And I'm not discounting that at all. What I am saying is that I think it's important to, to realize that the more fun you can have with something, the better off you'll be in the long run. And the more, uh, more fun you can have, the more easy, easier it is to be like totally focused and locked in on something that you truly enjoy. And I, and I love baseball and I, and I think I could have enjoyed it even more back in the day if I would have been able to do that. I am a generalist. I believe in balance. Uh, I believe when it's time to work, it's time to work. But when it's time to play, it's time to play. I, I like. I, again, I can't tell anybody how to live their lives or what they should do. But I've enjoyed every minute of my journey because of all those things. That okay, when it's time to do this, I'm going to be all in. But when it's time to do this, I'm going to be all in on that too. And I just. My path has been tremendous because of that, because I've I've allowed myself to be able to to be totally immersed into whatever I was doing and have some balance outside of the the sporting arena as well. Yeah, I think I think that that that's it right there where you're able to, you know, get the work done that you need and also um, reap the benefits of, you know, what comes after the work that you that you get done. And um, and I've definitely learned that and balance is something I've 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 been you know, working on recently, you know, I have 
I have a family of my own now and I'm trying to find the balance where, you know, I'm getting my work done and, and being locked into my career and my academics, obviously. And, you know, but now, you know, priorities shift and it's important to, to be home when I'm home and be at the ballpark when I'm at the ballpark. And, um, and I think being able to, to truly get engrossed in what you're doing uh, just allows you to be much more effective in, you know, whatever, whatever you're up to. Do you have a fail forward moment? Do you have something that along the way you felt like was going to set you back, but um, maybe one of the best things that happened to you? Yeah. Um, I would say that my, my entire senior year of college was my fail forward moment. Um, because my, my junior year, you know, I, I experienced a lot of success. You know, I was, I was an all American. I had a, I won a national gold glove that year and I was going into my senior year with a lot of high aspirations, you know, draft professional baseball, this and that. And, you know, I let all of that noise cloud my mind. And it wasn't until later in the season where, you know, we were in a playoff run and I started to play better because I realized I'm like, why am I, why am I doing this to myself? This is ridiculous. This is not who I am as a person. And ever since that moment, I realized how important the mental game is. And I experienced success because of the mental game and I experienced failure because of the mental game. And I realized that regardless of who, where I was on the spectrum, I know the mental game is important and that's really what springboarded my interest into this field. So I use my failure on the field to help me off the field and to, to really drive my, my desire and passion into this field of middle mental, mental skills coaching. And um, yeah, so it was a, it was quite the experience to go through that. I went through the exact same thing. Junior year, 90 hits, played in the Cape that summer. And then senior year, had six freshmen in our lineup. I had to move to the three-hole position, put all kinds of pressure on myself, had a pro scout tell me if I wanted to get drafted, I need to hit home more home runs. And that was never part of my game. So I went through the first half of my senior year of trying to do things that I was not capable of doing. And that helped me a lot as a coach to try to help players focus on, like, be who you are. If you're a home run hitter, then be a home run hitter. But if you're not, if you're a table setter, same thing on the mound. If you're a strike thrower and you don't throw very hard, then then be that guy. If you're a guy that throws hard, then by all means, be that guy. But again, stay with who you are because once you get outside yourself in any sort of performance-based arena, it's not going to go well for you. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, for, for all the listeners out there, it's important to know that um, you, you have to be the best version of yourself because that's the only version of yourself you can be. And that's the only person you can be. So it's, it's critical just to, to accept who you are and maximize who you are and not try to be anything that you're not because it's impossible to do so. What recommendations do you have? What are you into right now? Books, podcasts, uh, any other articles? What are you into right now? Uh, a lot of everything. Um, I try to try to mix up my, my learning game. Like I said, I, I try to dive into Spanish once a day at least. Um, so whether that's, you know, listening to music or, you know, reading a little bit or reading an ESPN um, Deportes article really helps actually, because you pick up some terminology that way. Um, a lot, a lot of books over, over the, over the year, the, the Giants minor league staff, we did a little book club. So we had a couple books that we went through and we would meet on zoom and talk about them and, um, a couple of good books that I recommend ego is the enemy is a really good one. Ryan holiday is a great author. 
Simon Sinek is a phenomenal author as well for the, for people looking for some good reading on leadership and motivation. He's really good. Um, and really anything that, uh, that I think could be helpful for our players, you know, and the way we package that, you know, we, we obviously recommend books all the time to players, but for the guys who don't necessarily want to read an entire book, um, we'll pick out some good passages and, and either give them a summary or, you know, send them, you know, a couple pages from the book that we think are, are really key or, you know, do our own, um, you know, synopsis of something and send it out to the guys. Cause it's important just to, to keep it fresh, keep it new, um, mix up the learning modalities so that they're, you know, seeing different things. And I try to listen to podcasts. I try to look at, um, you know, I specifically like will search podcasts for like people who are on it, like their guests just to see, you know, who, who are on there. So I don't necessarily subscribe to like one podcast or, you know, one or the other, I try to find a good mix. Um, but I'll definitely be listening back to this one to, to see how I did to see how I can get a little bit better. Um, but yeah, I, I try to try to do a lot of everything to, to, to see what else is out there and, and really um, build new perspectives and, and broaden the horizon a little bit. With a young family, are you able to stay on any sort of a routine? I remember I have a 17 year old, soon to be 18 year old and a 15 year old. And when they were younger, uh, routines went out the window for me personally, it was kind of get it in when I can. Are you able to stay on any sort of routine right now, mornings or evenings? I try. So we have a, we have a three-year-old and a one month old right now. So it's uh, extremely hard. Um, if I, I try to get my exercise in every single day, um, you know, throughout the, the past, the, over the year, we've, we've slowly accumulated a small home gym for myself because that keeps me sane. Um, so exercise has to happen. My three-year-old loves to, to hit off the tee, which I'm not complaining about go outside and let him do his thing and play. Um, but when it comes to just like the sleep routine, that's totally out the window with the, with an infant right now. Um, but you know, otherwise I, I know the importance of having a consistent sleep routine and, and making sure that I'm doing what I need to do, you know, from a, from a nutrition standpoint, exercise standpoint. So I wouldn't say that it's set in stone, but I have the, I have the essentials that I know help me operate at my highest level. And those are, those are the key ones. And I, and like you said, being where you are and like, and, and really, enjoying the time that I have at home with my, with my wife and kids and, and uh, you know, taking the dog out for a run if I need to get out of the house for a little bit um, and just knowing what I need for myself to, to be at my best and, and sticking to it as consistently as possible is critical. What are some final thoughts? Uh, I just say that the, the important thing to remember here is that our mind is extremely powerful and it can go in two different directions. It can help us or harm us when it comes to performing and training your mind allows that process to be left less to chance than it otherwise would. Because like you said, 60,000 plus thoughts a day, if we leave the majority of those thoughts up to chance, we're leaving everything up to chance. And the more thoughts we can be deliberate and intentional about, the more often they can be helpful for whatever we're doing. Like I said, the dissertation, I was like, okay, this is good because everybody's going to deal with this. And I just think as a coach, I went through it. You would, you know, luckily I didn't have a whole lot of players that got hurt, but mm -hmm. the ones you could, you just felt for them because you could see them in the side of the dugout. They're in the training room. They're on, they're on an Island by themselves. So the more stuff like this that you can add onto their plate it, it will get them back quicker. It will, it yeah. gets them back quicker. You know, one thing, one thing that I didn't mention, cause it wasn't necessarily uh, about the research 
is the work with the athletes. What I've, what I realize is a subtle, a subtle shift in language that I've shared with our athletic trainers is that a lot of times they get called injured athletes, but I've like, I've been really deliberate about, Hey, they're athletes with an injury. Yes. And that slight shift in language yes. helps reinforce that identity that they're still athletes. Yes. Um, just like you're talking about, they, they're isolated. They're by themselves, especially in pro ball where they're at their affiliate, they get hurt, they get sent to Arizona or Florida and they're away from their team for God knows how long yep. that they're extremely isolated. And it's so hard for those guys. Thanks for joining me, Callum. No, I appreciate you having me. I'm fired up to, to be here. I hope this is a great resource for you on how to help your injured athletes. I think all coaches need help with this situation so your athletes don't feel like they're left on an island once they get injured. Again, this was something I wasn't sure I did a good job with when I was coaching. You can reach out to Kellen at mentallyperform at gmail.com or his website mentallyperform.com. I wish him the best with the start of spring training and all of you with the start of your seasons. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram at RyanBrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABC app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Oh